A reading from Peter's first letter to the early church, chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So in September of 1974, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Michael Ramsey, who's the highest ranking clergy in the Church of England, if you don't know what that is, uh, he visited Chile. And the year before, the democratic Chilean government had been overthrown by uh, General Pinochet, and he had created this military dictatorship that would actually last into the 90s. This dictatorship would eventually lead to the disappearance, as they called it, of 1,248 people during the regime. It was horrific. And while Archbishop Ramsey preached in church that day in Chile, an armed guard waits outside, and he, the armed guard asked this reporter as he's leaving, he says, was there any politics in the sermon? Because he must stay with things of the soul, because politics, that's for us. And then he pat the gun that was under his arm. Now this seeming threat is pretty disturbing to most of us who have grown up or lived most of our lives in a separation of church and state uh, nation where the church is really protected kind of from the interference of the state. Others of us, well, we may not like the threat of force, but we kind of like the idea that the things of the soul, well, that's what the church is about and everything else, well, that's for somebody else. The things of the soul, that's really what the church is about. But imagine for a moment that you are a Chilean Christian living under Pinochet and you read these words from Peter. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Honor the emperor. Even if the emperor is Pinochet? What does this even actually mean? Sixty years before all of that, during World War I, there was this series of unofficial ceasefires that kind of took place along the Western Front, and it happened on Christmas Day, and kind of celebration of Christmas Day. Uh, it's kind of been known uh, famously since then as the Christmas Day Armistice, or the Christmas Day Truce, where enemy soldiers from both sides, they meet in no man's land, uh, and they actually exchange food with one another. They bury each other's dead. They play football or soccer, as we call it together. There are reports of soldiers actually singing Christmas carols in honor of the birth of Jesus together. And there's even a report of Belgian and German Christians who are on the opposite side of the war sharing communion with one another on Christmas because we often forget this. And in 1910, 68% of the world's Christians lived in Europe. 68%. Now, in his book, author Adam Hochschild, in his book, To End All Wars, confirms what we can probably imagine. The generals of the armies are furious that this is happening. They end up kind of writing into commanders on the front line. We have all these letters from both sides of the armies calling in and going, if they start to see the people in the opposing armies as brothers, 
well, they can't ever do what needs to be done to win the war. And so after this act of peace, in honor of Christmas and honor of the birth of Jesus, that evening, soldiers returned to their foxholes. And the next morning, these citizens of the kingdom of God returned to killing one another in the name of the kingdoms of this world. Is there a distinction between my call as a Christian and my call as a citizen of my country? Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. What does that mean? If you weren't here earlier, my name is Nathan. I'm on staff here at the church, and my job is to say depressing and confusing things to you. <laughs> they asked me to say, get up here and say things no one wants to talk about. Actually, we've been in a series this summer studying a letter uh, from an early church leader and one of Jesus' closest friends named Peter. And we talked about how this letter is actually written to a group of churches, a collection of churches that are spread across the Roman Empire uh, at that time. And they are suffering really under varying levels of persecution from the government, from the empire itself. And so their relationship when they are reading these words to the emperor, to their nation, it was mostly a hostile relationship. Last week, Jason led us through the previous section of this letter where Peter instructs churches, these churches, to see themselves as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That they are to see themselves in the church as set apart, a holy nation, an alternative kind of community, an alternative kind of kingdom to the kingdom of Rome where they lived in. They aren't to live like the people of their nation do. They are not to be like citizens of their country. And this section really is important for us to understand what we're talking about today. Because when we look at Peter's letter, and for most of us who have grown up in modern day America, where we're not facing persecution, we have freedom of religion. When we read, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, we just kind of skip past it. We read it as just generalized, good, patriotic wisdom, right? You got to follow the law. You got to respect authority. You got to pay your taxes. You're not happy about that part, but you know it's all kind of lumped in there together. Because even though Christians, for whatever reason in our country, want to talk about how the culture and the government is hostile to us and it's all turned around on us, not many of us are going to see ourselves in the way that these early Christians did, because when 4th of July comes across in a couple, you know, couple weeks here, you guys are all going to be posting things on Facebook, wearing the American flag on parts of your body that will get you banned on Facebook. And then you're going to be like, Facebook hates America. No, Facebook is anti-speedo, and so am I. You see, most of us don't really resonate with the beginning of that scripture. What we just read, where Peter says, see yourself as foreigners and exiles in your own country. I don't want to see myself as a foreigner in the kingdom of America. I don't want to see myself that. I mean, look, I'm going to cry. I'm going to salute when they play God bless the USA. I'm not a foreigner. I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. I, 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 I don't want to see myself as a foreigner. And so then what we hear is we hear, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And we assume what that means, and maybe you were even taught this, what it means to be a good Christian is to be a good American. 
that what it means to be a good Christian is you got to salute the flag and pledge allegiance. Oh, and you got to vote this certain way. You got to be on this political side of the bent. You know, if all God-honoring Christians are going to vote for this party, all God-honoring Christians are going to be for this legislation or against that legislation. And if you're not, well, maybe you're just not a Christian. What happens is, and we've talked about this before, we marry our faith to our politics. Maybe even more than that, we marry our faith to our nation, to our identity as Americans. But see, it's important when you read the Bible that you don't try and just look and go, well, what does this say to me? How am I feeling today? Which, if you're moody like me, is a bad approach anyway. (laughs) But you look at it and you say, what did this mean to the first people who read it? To the original audience? What was Peter trying to communicate to them? And you should know, to the original audience, this was not their worldview at all. One, this idea that there's somehow a separation, there are things that are sacred, and that's what God cares about, and then there's stuff that's secular, and that's stuff God doesn't care that much about. That is not a Christian idea. It is not an ancient idea. It is mostly a post-enlightenment idea. The idea that this world, there's really not too much secular, I mean, there's not too much sacred going on. There's a couple, you know, maybe there's not even anything supernatural. And so there's these religious things you do, and that's sacred, and that's nice. You got your religion, and you put that in a box, and that's over here. The real world happens in the secular world, and that stuff God doesn't care too much about. That is not how any of these early Christians would have read this. That is not how anyone would have read it. Second, the idea for them that Jesus was truly king, like we sing about around here, that he had brought a new kingdom into existence, that his followers were primarily citizens of that kingdom, that holy nation. They did not see that as some kind of spiritual metaphor. They did not just see it as some kind of spiritual reality. They would no longer, in their case, Pledge allegiance to the kingdom of Rome or bow down to the emperor as Lord is often actually what even got them killed, right? The ruling authorities of their day did not care too much about what they thought about the afterlife. They were much interested in something else. That's why Paul had to write to a pastor named Titus and tell him, hey, you got to remind your church, they got to start obeying the law. They don't want to obey the laws, They don't want to obey the ruling authorities that are around them. And then he has to write in Romans 13 and explain to them, hey, I know Rome is, it's evil, man. They're doing evil stuff to us. But even those kind of governments, God can work in the middle of. And to them, they would have thought, this doesn't make sense. God came to take over, right? That's the whole point. These early Christians, they were not being persecuted over their ideas about spirituality or what happens when you die or some abstract religious ideas. In Acts 17, we're told Paul and Silas are put on trial. They are charged with proclaiming allegiance to an alternative king, a rival to Caesar. These early Christians were not patriotic Roman citizens willing to follow orders and kill and die for their country like you see with the soldiers of the Christmas truce. They were often more like enemies of the Roman state, like in Pinochet's Chile. And Peter and Paul, what they're trying to do is they're trying to write to help these believers live in a world that is hostile to them. For Jewish people living in the first century, the kingdom of God was not an abstract spiritual idea. So when Jesus arrived on the scene proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, 
People were not imagining some inner spirituality or personal relationship with God. They were expecting an actual change to the political landscape of their world. They were expecting that the Roman oppressors would be driven out and that Israel would be restored as a nation. And in many ways, Jesus seemed to play into these ideas. As scholar N.T. Wright points out, the Galilean hills where Jesus took his followers when he appointed 12 of them to be his closest disciples was often a place where political revolutionaries called Lestai would often hide out to train. These holy warriors refused to bow to Caesar and only called God their king. So imagine the moment when Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi in the Galilean hills, and they declare that he is the Messiah, the chosen king of God, and the son of God. And then Jesus says that based on their devotion to him as king, he will build his church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. And then, as N.T. Wright puts it, when Jesus told them that they were going to march on Jerusalem, where the Son of Man would suffer and be vindicated, they were almost bound to have heard him invite them to come with him on a desperate mission, which might involve some of them being hurt or killed, but in which they would be victorious, which is probably why Peter immediately rebukes Jesus for saying that the Messiah would die, because Peter can't imagine the victory of God coming this way. It would take until after Jesus' death and resurrection for Peter to see that the Messiah had to suffer and die for the kingdom of God to be victorious over the kingdoms of this world and the powers of sin and death. You see, Jesus' death was not only a way to free us from the power of sin and death, but it was also, as the Apostle Paul put it, the way he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers of this world that were influenced by the powers of sin and Satan were shown as weak and shameful when they threw the worst they could at the Son of God and he walked it off three days later. And so imagine being an early Christian who is convinced that you are a citizen of this kingdom that the worst pain and humiliation and even death can't shake. And imagine that you and everyone you love are facing intense persecution from the rulers and authorities of this world. Could you imagine how tempting it would be to want to establish a Christian nation? To overthrow these evil rulers and authorities that Jesus had already shamed publicly on the cross. Caesar already considers you an enemy to the Roman people. You have to gather in secret at night. This also causes suspicion from your Roman neighbors. They see you as a political revolutionary group or some kind of cult. In fact, some early Roman writings expressed confusion and outrage over Christian practices. They accused them of cannibalism as they ate the body and drank the blood of their master. They accused them of incest because husbands and wives would call each other brother and sister. Your entire existence as a community wasn't just considered weird. You were often accused of being evil, wicked, and bad for society. And from time to time, you faced deeper persecution imprisonment, beatings, torture, and public executions. How could you ever consider yourself a citizen of that nation? How could you ever align yourself with the powers that killed your king? But Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Hold on a second, Peter. They aren't just punishing those who do wrong. They're punishing our husbands and children and friends. Why should we submit to them? 
for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Wait, it's not God's will that we take over? It's not God's will that we establish a Christian nation and pass legislation to let us worship in freedom and encourage others to do your will? It's God's will that you, who are foreigners in the country you live in, would do good and reveal the goodness of God to the people you live among. Can you imagine how tempting it would be to never submit to the laws of a nation that wishes you harm? That is actively persecuting and oppressing you and everyone you love? And what Peter is saying to these believers is, submit where you can. So where the will of human rulers aligns with God's will, you can feel free to submit. You are not bowing the knee to Caesar. You're still bowing the knee to God, who commanded you to do this as well. But never forget that your true allegiance is not to Caesar, but to Christ and Christ alone. one out of seven Christians in the world, that's over 360 million believers live in places that are hostile uh, to Christianity and where they face high levels of persecution. These are believers who are well acquainted with the feelings of being foreigners and exiles in their very own countries. And on the night before um, he was killed, Jesus prayed for believers throughout all history, knowing that many believers would face persecution in his name. And here's what he prayed. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. And though in this country we don't face persecution, we're bonded to these believers as our brothers and as our sisters. And as the Apostle Paul says, when any part of the body hurts, well, we hurt as well. And so today, we just want to remind ourselves that we also are foreigners and exiles in this world by praying for our brothers and our sisters who are facing persecution. Now, on the screen in just a moment, you'll see a list, and it's in not in any particular order, of the top 10 countries where it's most dangerous to be a Christian. And beside is a list of ways to pray for the persecuted believers. And so I just want to give you a couple of minutes of silence just to read over these lists and allow God to draw out one or two nations to pray for. And uh, in that time, use the time just to pray quietly for the persecuted church. And this, I get it, this may sound strange or it may be uncomfortable for you, but we believe that God hears our prayers and that he listens to the cries of his children. So let's take a couple of moments just to cry out to our Heavenly Father on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are living under persecution.
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would stretch out your mighty hand and do what only you can do for believers living under persecution. Would you protect the church and keep them safe from the evil one? And would you embolden them to live in this world of trouble without becoming of it? God, we thank you for the freedom that we experience in this country to gather together and worship. And I pray for all of us to mirror that same courage and that same boldness of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church. May we also choose to be in this country, but not of it. May we resemble your kingdom of peace and love and justice, and not the nation that we were born into. Strengthen us to represent you and your kingdom above all others. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So what exactly does it look like for us to live as foreigners and exiles in 2023 America, where persecution's not at our door and we have freedom of religion? Well, first, I don't think it means that you never get involved in political issues. You see, there is no separation between sacred and secular for God. God cares about every part of our lives, even areas we wish he didn't, right? He cares about how you handle your money, even though you wish he didn't. He cares about how you handle your relationships. He cares about how you handle your sexuality, even though you wish he didn't. He cares about your physical health and your mental health and your emotional health. He cares about all of it. And he also cares about how you take care of your neighbors and the poor and the vulnerable. And since these are issues that are going to affect society, they will fall into the realm of politics. And as long as we have the ability to have some influence over these matters, I think it is a helpful thing. It is a loving thing for us to do so where we can. But being a citizen of the kingdom of God means we give up trusting that a political solution or a political power will save our world. We give up trusting that somehow if we could just get that law passed, we could get that person in office, that would fix everything. That is how our neighbors in the world must see it. But we have a different view. We do not think political solutions will save our world. So American democracy will not save our world. American freedom will not save our world. American military intervention will not save our world because America will not save our world. We've already sang it today. There is a Savior, and His name is Jesus. He is the Savior, and His kingdom does not operate the way the kingdoms of this world do, including this kingdom of America. That's the second thing we have to do, is we have to choose to reach for a different kind of power. I have to be pretty direct here. One of the things that is most heartbreaking to me about American Christianity, because that's the world I live in, and I want to be more direct here, in particular, white Christianity, is the way in which white Christians in this country who have experienced a lot of power and privilege here in our country, when we start to feel in different ways, like that might be slipping out of our fingertips, we may not have the power that we once thought we had, there's this almost self-righteous indignation that comes up that says we need to fight back, we need to win the argument, we need to get other people, we need to force our way, we may even need to take up arms and fight back to make sure that we get our way. And then we say, because the world is just 
that's going to hell lately. Because we have tied so much our faith into our politics on this. And so then we start talking about when things start to fall apart, well, everything's rigged against us. The election's rigged. The culture is turned against us. It's rigged against us, and we want to fight back to take control. What did Jesus' followers do when their king was arrested on false charges? Jesus said to Pilate when he's on trial, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom? Well, it's from another place. And he doesn't mean like from another dimension or another planet. He means it is not of this world. It does not operate the way the rest of the kingdoms of this world does. We do not take power over others. We do not force our way on others. We don't use violence as a means of resistance. The way of the kingdom of God is the way of the cross. Jesus, remember what Paul said? He shamed the powers of this world and of the unseen world by laying his life down in self-sacrificial, self-suffering kind of love. As Pastor A.W. Tozer calls it, it is voluntary suffering love. It is the choice to suffer for love. That is the power of the kingdom. I think a lot about one of the greatest, if not the greatest, social movement in our country's history that leveraged political power in a different kind of way. The civil rights movement of the 1960s. Instead of taking up arms against a government which had systematically oppressed and beaten and dehumanized them, mostly black Christians, most prominently led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., chose to lay their lives on the line. They voluntarily suffered to allow the inhumanity, the cruelty of the Jim Crow South, the racist laws around them to be exposed so that the rest of the nation would have to look at the suffering in their bodies and say, never again. They were willing to suffer, to put their lives on the lines. Grandmothers, grandfathers, alongside young men and women, they not only marched, but they allowed themselves to be humiliated and beaten and imprisoned and even killed to shame the powers of this world, to show what injustice and cruelty looks like. Dr. King once wrote in an essay titled Loving Our Enemies these powerful words. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much of a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. So throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children. We shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead. We shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down with our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom. But not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. See, as a white Christian who has not experienced very much unjust suffering in my life, I am beyond grateful for these men and these women who lived their faith out in public, who by faith in Christ are now a part of my family heritage ancestors in my faith 
Brothers and sisters, that as the book of Hebrews, I think, would confidently say, this world was not worthy of them. That his kingdom is not up this way. But still, you've got to submit to the ruling authorities, for it is by God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It is by doing good. It is through suffering love. It's not over power over anyone, but power from underneath that this world changes. There's a famous quote that says that the difference between a martyr and a tyrant is that when the tyrant's life ends, their power ends. When a martyr's life ends, it begins. Doing good, suffering love, So Peter leaves this very practical advice for you and I. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is our focus in a world where we are simply foreigners and exiles. So how are you doing at showing proper respect to everyone? Particularly those you disagree with politically. How's that going on social media? How's that going at family functions? How's that just going in your heart? You know, respect means that you recognize every person as infinitely valuable because they are made in the image of God. No matter how they vote, what they think, that never gets taken away from them. So how in your heart are you respecting people? You ever dehumanized another person and you don't call it that? But you've labeled an entire person as an idiot because of their political beliefs? You ever decided an entire group of people is evil because of what they advocate for? politically you ever said i know all i need to know about you because of what you just posted you ever dehumanized a person and just brought them down to that well you're commanded to show proper respect to everyone how are you doing at honoring the emperor do you pray for those who are in power like we are commanded to in first timothy do you ever choose that you're just going to ignore certain laws that you don't like they just don't kind of work with you, you get speed limits tax codes Corporate laws that you think, you know what, I'm not sure I agree with that, so I'm not sure I'm going to have to follow that. Are you able to celebrate when a senator or a president that you would never vote for passes a piece of legislation or says something that you actually do agree with? Did you know that was possible? Have you ever found yourself able to actually celebrate somebody, to celebrate something someone said or some, something someone did that you agree with, even if it's someone you would never vote for. In fact, that may be a pretty good practice for you this week. Find one piece of legislation, find one quote, find one opinion of someone that you would never vote for or advocate for and share it publicly and say, I thought that was kind of cool. Well, but then people might think I'm associated with them. People might think I'd vote like they did. Maybe like Jesus was associated with sinners and tax collectors and people had all kinds of thoughts about them. Remember, wasn't that the goal? WWJD, not WWAOCD, or WWDJTD, or my favorite, WWFFD. This is everyone's favorite. What would the founding fathers do? Who is your allegiance to? Who gets to determine? how you think and you treat your neighbors. See, Peter puts that right in the middle so we don't lose it. Love the family of believers. Fear God. One thing that frustrates me beyond belief about believers that I know, but believers in our church as well, 
that are so incredibly vocal about their politics and so incredibly silent in the church. You got a lot of opinions, you got a lot of thoughts of what everyone else should be doing. You're not doing too much at all yourself. Believers who rant on Facebook and show up at meetings to talk about what our children are being taught or indoctrinated into into the public school system, yet you don't serve in our children's ministry where you could invest in the life of a child. Do you really care what children are being taught? We're about to start an after-school program later this year at Welch Elementary. Are you signing up to volunteer for that? Are you going to help mentor some kids in our public school system and actually get into the public school system and get to know someone and invest in their life? Yeah, that cost me a little more than a Facebook post, though. There's a little more than I was willing, really, to do. Same thing with people who want to talk about what the government should be doing or shouldn't be doing for the poor, yet they give none of their personal income to make sure that what happens through our church with the poor or with organizations like Bridging the Gap or Coweta Forest. They're giving no personal income there, but they got a lot of opinions about what should be done or shouldn't be done for the poor. Yet your king told you that what you do for the least of these, you do to him. Who is your allegiance to? Believers who have a lot of opinions on either side of it, of what should happen in the lives of unborn children or the bodies of women, yet you are not involved with any single mothers here in our church where you could actually make a difference in their lives because you don't do small group. Or you do small group, but you've done it with the same people who are just like you and you never actually gotten to know any single mothers and their children to be able to invest in their life. You know, Jesus had a term for people who were very vocal about what everyone else should do, yet lived it out nothing in their life. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. See, that cost me more than a vote. Cost me more than a post on Facebook. Cost me time and energy and money, and I might get close enough to a problem that their suffering might actually become my suffering. It might be uncomfortable. It may be difficult for me. See, that's the way of the kingdom. And in case you forgot, Jesus did not give the keys of his kingdom to an emperor or a president or to the United States of America. He gave it to his church. And so are you invested in his kingdom? Are you invested in his church? Or are you, and let's just be honest about what it is, playing political theater games. It's just fun. It's a sport. Where is your allegiance? So let me challenge you to get involved here in our community because we have been called. We, not America, we have been called to be a faithful witness to the kingdom of God here in the kingdom of America. So will you join us in that? See, because I don't know. I don't know how to fix the country. You guys seem very clear on what should fix the country. I hear it from you. I don't know. Or how to fix our county. But I know for one thing, Here at Community Christian, the kingdom of God must be powerfully felt among us. We must live radically different from everyone else in such a way that we can love and serve others. And so would you go to the Next Step Center? Would you actually sign up for that one-hour Next Step class? Would you say, I'm going to take a step in that my voice will be heard. I will be a part of making sure the kingdom of God is felt here. One last story, then I'm done and you are ready for me to be done. During the height of apartheid in South Africa, 
Bishop Desmond Tutu was preaching in a chapel, and at that point, the government had already claimed that any anti-apartheid preaching was illegal. And so he's preaching, he has this whole gathering going on, and in the middle of the service, the South African security police break into the cathedral. And if you don't know, the South African security police was basically the Gestapo of South Africa. They break in to arrest Bishop Tutu, and he stops preaching for a moment, and he just stares them down, and he says, you are powerful, very powerful, but I serve a God who cannot be mocked, and since you have already lost, we invite you to come and join the winning side. And then he started dancing in front of them. <laughs> the powers of this world, the powers of darkness, the power of America, and of racism, and of evil will not win the day. The cross has spoken. Jesus Christ is king, and he is reigning in victory. And so you are invited to join the winning side. Will you take a step? As we celebrate the victory of Jesus today, I've invited Steve to come out and lead us through the meal communion. Next week.